welcome to another edition of Aspen Answered. Today, Brandon, Katie, and I are joined by Dr. Craig Risberg, who served as Asp's 20th president from 2005 to 2006. Dr. Risberg is a professor emeritus of sports psychology and motor behavior at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Dr. Risberg. Really looking forward to our conversation. You're welcome, and I as well. To start off, um, could you give us your elevator pitch bio about uh, what you're doing now? Well, I am retired from the University of Tennessee. I was a professor of sports psychology, as you mentioned, and motor behavior uh, for 34 years there. Retired in 2011, uh, living in Knox, continuing to live in Knoxville, and uh, just enjoying each day, um, kind of like make it up each day, not, not on a hardcore agenda or anything. It seems like some of the people that we've talked to, retirement has certainly not been a slowdown for them and that they're continuing to be very active, engaged in lots of different things. Yeah, well, that's that's been my experience, but a lot of it is serendipitous. It's not planned. It's just something shows up, and I am continually amazed how often that happens in, and in many, many different ways. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun. And the nice thing about retirement is you can say no. <laughs> yeah, or no, no, thank you. Or <laughs> we, we appreciate you saying yes to this request. Um, that, that keeps you a little bit busy. You know, one of the things, you know, for the for this particular podcast, kind of one of our goals is to get a better understanding of how, like, you know, key figures in our field, such as, as yourself, um, got to where you are today. So kind of an expanded version of the, the previous question. Can you tell us and our listeners a, a little bit about your background and kind of the pathway you took to, to get to where you are? And then if there's any particular you know moments or just kind of significant experiences that stand out to you, certainly feel free to, to highlight those. I think if there's one word to describe my professional journey, it's serendipity. Um, and I'll give you some examples as I talk a little bit about the progression. In college, my, my dad thought I would make a good attorney, so I started out as a history and political science major. Uh, after about a semester, that wasn't really resonating with me much, and so I switched to business, and that wasn't very exciting either. I was, I was on the baseball team. I, I went to a small liberal arts college in Illinois, Greenville College. Greenville College, by the way, is the alma mater of Coleman Griffith. I did not know that. How, oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, on a, on a baseball road trip, I remember my coach, you know, how you have to converse over several hours, asking me how school was going. I said, that's okay. He said, does it doesn't sound like you're having a lot of fun. I said, no, not really. It's, it's not that interesting. He says, well, what do you love? He said, I said, I love sport and, and physical activity. He said, well, have you thought about physical education? So I said, no. He said, well, why don't you switch? So I did. In the middle of my sophomore year, I went from business to physical education. And sometimes I wonder where I'd be if he hadn't asked that question on, that, on the road trip. Would I have finished up in business and wandered off into life? But I got into a field that began to look at, at uh, the study of sport and uh, physical education. Um, in those small schools, most of the majors 
tend to end up teaching high school PE and coaching. And I did a student teaching experience, which convinced me I did not want to teach high school PE and, and coach at that level. Probably the biggest serendipitous moment of my professional life occurred literally a week before graduation. I, I didn't have a job, which I, I look back, I wonder why that didn't worry me at the time. But this is a small school and I was in the office of the athletic director. And in walks a friend of his from Indiana State who was coming back on a trip from Oklahoma back to Indiana. And he was the graduate coordinator in PE. So here I am with the AD and his buddy and they start talking. So now I'm kind of eavesdropping on this conversation. And in, in about 10 minutes, the ADS, his friend, so how's it going? He said, that's pretty good, John. Uh, um, I, I just have one assistantship left for next year. Once we get that filled, I think we'll be okay. And the AD turns to me and says, Risberg, what are you doing next year? <laughs> I, said, oh, I don't know. And he says, would you like to go to graduate school? <laughs> I guess so. So that grad coordinator on the word of his AD offered me not only the assistantship, but admission to the graduate program in physical education at Indiana State. That's incredible. Again, now that was, that was a 15 minute window, folks. Where would I be today if I hadn't been in that office, in that window, uh, and overheard that conversation? Um, so I went there and I uh, studied exercise physiology and the major professor that worked with me, he thought I was PhD material. He was a PhD from Michigan and his name was Robert McDavid. And he said, why don't you apply to Michigan and I'll write you a letter. And so I did, I was accepted to the PhD program in exercise physiology. Uh, about two weeks after I finished my master's, I was drafted into the army during Vietnam. And so for the next 22 months, I was in the military. But after I got out, I went to Michigan and started there in exercise physiology, but they had a different kind of model. They were doing animal research, you know, sacrificing little mice and stuff. And this just was not in, of interest to me. There was a course in motor behavior there that was taught by Richard Schmidt, who uh, unbeknownst to me is one of the top names in the field of motor behavior. He was only about five years older than I was. I thought he was another graduate student when I first met him. So I took his course, I really got turned on to motor behavior. And I went to him one day late in that semester and asked if he would be open to taking me on as a PhD student, which would mean switching from exercise physiology to motor behavior. And he said, well, why don't you think about it? He thought I was maybe going too quickly, but I was pretty convinced and so I did. But the exposure to motor behavior, I think unbeknownst to me at the time, actually became foundational to my work in sports psychology because those two fields, at least in my experience, go hand in glove. Motor behavior really talks about the experience of skill acquisition, transfer into other types of con performance contexts, and what are the variables that impact people's improvements, and also their ability to perform under pressure. That's all comes out of motor behavior, really. So a lot of my consulting is grounded in motor behavior principles. Uh, and, and some sports psychology. But that said, I had no training at all in sports psychology. When I finished my program at Michigan, I was offered a job at Virginia Tech and um, to develop the motor learning laboratory, but also 
was assigned a class in sports psychology. So with no background, by the way, some of you may have experienced this. You may be assigned classes, you have no background. You'll be okay, you just got to stay a day ahead of the students and act like <laughs> what you're talking about, which is what I did. But I kind of got interested in this subject while I was teaching it. And I would have speakers come in, and I remember at one time I had the, the tech football defensive coordinator. His name was Charlie Pell. He ended up coaching at Florida. Now, I want to know coaches' experience, you know, in, in, in the mental part of their preparation of athletes. That's, I just wanted the students to hear them talk about it. And he and I had lunch a couple times, and he asked me, have you ever thought about working with athletes on their mental game? And I thought, no, well, I know I hadn't thought about it. And I just kind of dismissed it. He said, well, you might. You might down the road. So that was kind of a seed kind of planted. I was at Tech for three years and then was offered the position of Tennessee. And it was basically the same job requirements, develop the laboratory in motor behavior and teach a graduate class in sports psychology. About the second year I taught that class, the women's volleyball coach at UT, who was working on a master's, took the course. And it was literally only a couple weeks into the semester. And I noticed him hanging around after class and he said, um, have you done any of this with athletes? And I said, no. He said, I think this would be, this would be a good thing. I'd like you to meet with my team. Huh? You know, I have no, no background. I said, well, let, let's think about it. Well, he, he didn't go away. And finally I said, okay, well, let's set the bar real low. Let me come and just observe, get to know the players. And I'm just kind of, you know, winging it with a little bit of the material I'm teaching in class. And I observed their practices and matches and then got to know them. And, and we would do debriefing sessions and I just kind of turned it on them. What'd you like about how you played in this match? What did, would you learn? Anything you learned to work on? And he liked that because that gave him some targets for things that they could work on to get better. And then some of the players, as they got to know me, they approached me about working individually on you know, like serving is an individual part. They were not pleased with their ability to put the ball where they wanted to under pressure and matches and things. And the word started to get around. And about a year later, it turns out this is kind of another serendipitous moment. Um, the basketball coach at Virginia Tech's, his name was Don DeVoe. And his wife was in the same college as I was at Tech. So I got to know Don. Well, he, he went from Virginia Tech to Wyoming when I went to Tennessee. And then he came to Tennessee to be the basketball coach. And he and I had developed a friendship at Tech. And so we began doing lunch and playing tennis. And, and he talked about several of his players having some, mainly free throw shooting, but having some difficulty, you know, performing under pressure. So I began to work with a few of those guys. And then the track and cross country coach kind of got wind that I was doing some stuff. And he approached me about meeting with his team. This is interesting, meeting with his team, who I knew none of the athletes, like the week before the Southeast Conference Championships, cross-country championships. So what would you do there? Uh, so I, I go in, I say, hey, I have no idea what you guys are going through, but I would appreciate it if you would just go around the table here and, and let me know a little bit about what your plan for the race is. How are you going to approach your race? And they each one did. Um, and after that meeting, the coach 
he thought that was fantastic. Is that's the first time he's ever heard his his athletes talk about how they mentally prepared for a race. So what I learned from that is a lot of times um, I think we presume that we have the answers when really the answers a lot of times come from the athletes themselves. And if you just get them talking about their experience, some things will come to my mind from motor behavior research, from sports psychology literature that I can say, well, this is something we might want to try. So uh, it, it really was be the beginning of, I think, the development of my own consulting approach, which is very collaborative. I don't tell athletes what to do. I, I, I need their help. I really need their help to help me understand what they're experiencing. And then together we can come up with some strategies. Um, by the late 80s, the number of athletes that were using me was to the point where I couldn't do it myself. So I went to the AD and he said, well, submit a proposal um, for what you can give us. So I did. I, I, I could give him up to 20% of my time. The university allows that to faculty um, to be available to work with interested athletes and coaches. And he also granted me two, he funded two graduate assistantships to help me with some teams. He also funded my trips to ASP, the ASP conferences, travel. Money is really of no importance to big athletic department, but I thought it was a pretty, pretty good deal. And some of those, those people, those doctoral students who got those assistantships have become really prominent in the field. Greg Dale, who was at Duke, uh, was my first doctoral student in sports psychology. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. I spent a semester in Germany when we began to put this um, arrangement into place. Greg Dale, a doctoral student, actually ran the mental training program for the first six months. I was in Germany. And he did such a fantastic job that they actually would have liked to have him stay around. But at that time, there was no full-time position. That began to happen later uh, let's see, around the late 90s. Um, and so the AD decided, and I really encourage this, to create a full-time position for a director of mental training for UT Athletics. And the PhD student at the time who was finishing up, Joe Whitney, got that position, and he's been in that role since 2001. Yeah, so I think all of those represent significant aspects. Um, I... Um, never knew anything about sports psychology. I never attended the sports psychology sessions in NASPA, which was the organization I was involved with originally. But then, as you know, John Silva had a meeting of interested people in 1988 and 89 and developed ASP. And I didn't go to those conferences for the first several years. But when I started working with UT athletes, I thought, well, maybe I ought to go at least see what they're doing. I remember the first conference I went to, I showed up in Montreal, and I think it was Dan Gould or Robin Vila, because they, they knew me from NASPA, and they knew I was a motor learning person. They said, what are you doing here? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to learn something about sports psychology. They, they, they said, well, I thought you were in motor learning. Well, motor learning is kind of related to sports psychology, but bear with me, will you? So let me attend the conference, and uh, that was the beginning of my of my experience in in and ask. Um, 
I think I think at that point then um, when I when I first came to UT it was to develop a motor learning PhD that went to a back burner and, and we developed a graduate program in sports psychology with motor behavior as a as a as a secondary aspect. But when that happened and word got out that there were two assistantships in athletics at the University of Tennessee, as you can imagine, the application just flooded in. It was just me and eventually we hired uh, Leslie Fisher. Um, we're working with about nine PhD students at a time, three in each, you know, first, second, third year. And um, began to do some research. Um, I think probably the most important research that we conducted was in the late, in the mid 2007, eight, we did um, countrywide surveys of D1 programs where we asked student athletes, coaches, and athletic administrators about their openness to sports psychology services. We were already doing it at Tennessee. We were just curious, how, how interested are they? And papers were published on athletes in 20, 2009, on coaches in 2010, and on ADs in 2012, all in the sports psychologist. And we got a lot of, uh, I think, interest in that. I don't know to what extent it prompted other people in sports psych to confront their athletic departments about maybe getting some access or not. But I think those are very important because in all cases, the general response was open and very open in the minds of the athletes and the coaches. ADs, not quite as much because that means devoting money in a position and so forth. There's other considerations. One other thing I want to say, and, and this will be pretty much it. Um, prior to my exposure to sports psychology, most of my research was quantitative, laboratory research in motor learning. But I, I began to look into qualitative research methods where the data are people's words, where you do interviews, where you really get into the experiences of participants. And I found that really suited well the field of sports psychology because the fact is we really don't know what athletes' experiences are. And so let's ask them. So I went from pretty much exclusively quantitative methods to pretty much exclusively qualitative methods and if you look at the dissertations and the research coming out of Tennessee from about that time till I retired in 2011, it's mostly qualitative research. Um, and then the, the other thing that's very much in line with that, and I think also pertains to the way I do consulting. I, I had a good friend in counseling psychology who was interested in the, in the concept of existential phenomenology. Phenomenology is basically one's experience of the, of the world. And, and we, we played tennis together and we had lunch together and, and he would come to our seminars and, and he would say, you know, this is, this, this is well suited to sports psychology. You know, it's, instead of having an athlete come in and start telling them what you know, have an athlete come in, first of all, say to them, I don't have a clue what your experience is and I really need your help. And then spend some time asking them to describe in as much detail as they can what stands out for them in their sport experience. That completely revolutionized my consulting. Um, and that's the way I begin every consulting uh, session, is help me, I need your help. 
I mean, they're the expert. I'm not the expert. And and I'll have some thoughts. I'm not a mind reader. I can't have any thoughts until you help me. And it's amazing how even younger ones and ones that are a little more timid, when they when they realize you're serious. I mean, think about how many athletes have a coach that says, I really want to understand your experience. Right. Or help me understand. <laughs> no, it's do it or we'll get somebody else to do it, right? So that that um, kind of partnering with participants as, as a segue then to looking at where in their performance are they underachieving and what's what's maybe the possible reasons and then start to look at some possible ways to address those challenges and give them a better chance of getting the results they want. Those stand out for me, beginning in that AD's office uh, till uh, you know, till I discovered a phenomenological approach to performance consulting. Well, you mentioned, you know, these moments that stand out to you or that are important to you. And as you're like describing these, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, these are probably very likely moments that had a very significant impact on the development of the field of sports psychology. But, you know, to have somebody in a director's position in terms of mental training in the athletic department for over 20 years, I have to think at that point in time when that first happened, you know, as a, a doc student of yours, well, number one, a doc program, we start, we can start with that. Um, but to, to put that together and then to have, you know, a, a student that moves into this position that, you know, we talk about the growth of applied positions, you know, now at that point, I mean, I suspect unheard of. Um, yeah, I mean, and that was, and we'll get to that eventually. I think that was the big right, thing to ask right. is, you know, all these students come to this conference because they want to do this stuff, but there's no jobs, you know. Right. <clears throat> so they come for one year and you never see them again at the conference. And yeah, and they're, they're and I think the, the opportunities are growing, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right, Brandon. I, you, you may know, do you, um, you know Taryn Morgan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Duncan yeah. Simpson and Greg Young, those are all PhDs from Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, we're working at arguably maybe the most um, obvious private uh, athlete training facility in the country. And, right. and um, we've had some of our master's students go down there and do internships in the summertime. So, yeah, they, they show up in different places. People like Greg at Duke, there's been others working with their athletic departments. Um, I think most of them um, tend to be folks who have communication skills to get their foot in the door with the athletic department and then do some kind of work on retainer or as they have time. And if they're good, they may get, you know, more opportunities. But you're right. right. Um, And I think it's a big question for the field is, is all the stuff we're doing really generating more, you know, serious prospects for people who want to do this on more than just a part-time basis. Right. Something that um that you said just now that's resonating is I feel so often we hear the phrase of like, when people say like, how do I get more work? It's always like, do good work, do good work. And like, you'll have more work. And I think to your point, it's that like initial opportunity to do any work though. And so I think the conversation that you had with your athletic director are still questions that people are having with theirs now, where as faculty were asked to take on more, 
Um, but there's only so much more to give. And so how do we make those into opportunities for other people to then continue to do work and continue to go to the field, which is a challenge. That's absolutely true. I, it, it, it is an ongoing, I think, challenge. I, I think the opportunities, or at least the exposure of our field has increased. You look at the recent media attention to Olympic athletes, mainly struggling some with mental health issues. But that's another thing too, I think, uh, and that's been a tension in ASP is to what extent is sports psychology clinical counseling? To what extent is it more kinesiological, motor performance, motor learning? I think it can be both. I'm not sure the same person can do both of those things. I worked with a, uh, I worked with hundreds of athletes at UT when I was there and um, I think there were maybe five that during the course of our performance consulting, something came up that I, I considered in the, beyond my pay grade. Mm -hmm. And I have a, a local buddy who's a clinical psychologist who's also a motocross athlete, which is kind of cool. And his name's Mark Barnes. And I, you know, I will refer them to Mark. And sometimes Mark will refer people that come into him to me because he's realizing this is more about their, their approach to performance. It's not really about mental health. But I also think from a motor learning standpoint that while I make it clear, I do not do mental health. I do, I'm not, that's not my area. Here's what I do. I work on focus and composure and skills to improve that under pressure. But I do think that while we don't emphasize it, and I've had athletes say this, if, if you give them a more confident approach to dealing with pressure, that reduces performance anxiety. Isn't that kind of improving mental health? They go into performance not fearing failure. They go into performance trusting their training. And in that sense, they're more confident people. They have responses that are productive that they can use to give themselves a chance even when facing you know, extreme adversity. So I think there is some overlap but I, I do think that at least the athletes that I worked with, they, they saw a very clear difference between a performance consultant and a psychologist, mm -hmm. a clinical psychologist. Sure. I also really like that your story into sports psych started with someone asking you like a poignant question of like, do you like what you're doing? And now your consulting philosophy is all centered around like asking others a very question very like yeah. full circle that's a good observation i hadn't thought about that yeah <laughs> but i think you know i think i think in a way good consultants it's more about asking the good questions and not about answers we're not the answer people um and i have found that very often in a phenomenological interview that they will kind of get back i remember a springboard diver we were talking about our pre-dive routine and I said, could you explain that for me? And in the process of explaining it, she realized that there was a portion of it that she had, for whatever reason, dropped out. And it was something that worked. So, and she says, yeah, I need, I need to get back to that. <laughs> I had a place kicker. There's another one. I had a place kicker who didn't need me after the, you know, once he got his kicking approach down. But he liked to come every week to talk about how he performed in the previous game where they were going, we're going to go to Auburn. He's got it all mapped out. He knows exactly where he's going, exactly what it's going to be like. Here's what I'm going to do. 
Here's it. And then he looked at me and said, how's it sound? I said, that sounds good. And he'd leave. That was the session. Hi, <laughs> James. He talked for 10 minutes. How's it sound? Good. See ya. <laughs> so I think just being available to listen. Right. And there were right. times when I did have an idea or here's another thought. Uh, but very often those other thoughts came from other athletes, mm-hmm. you know, in the course of the conversations with them. So I'm not sure how much of really what I offered was really out of me and not out of some of the people that were helping me understand what's it like. I mean, it certainly underscores the importance of just being present with that other person in the room and um, how impactful that in and of itself can really Yeah. There's a Canadian sports psychologist where I knew, I guess he's still working with Canadian Olympic athletes, his name is Cal Botterill. But when Cal started to work with the Canadian Olympic basketball team, he said he had a hard time getting the players to really acknowledge him, you know, to accept him. And he said that the the door opened one in one game. I don't know who they were playing, but one of the players on his team was fouled in a hard way going to the basket, hit the floors, and it was hot in the gym and just, you know, the sweat just kind of went. And you know, normally have these people with the, you know, the brooms and mops and they come out. Cal, for whatever reason, grabbed a towel. I get emotional here. Um, went out and got down on his hands and knees and wiped the sweat up. And then he said, he headed back to the bench. He said he never had that team look at him like that before. It was like, this is our guy. This is one of our guys. Because he wiped up the sweat. He's not too good to wipe up his, it's like, you know. So I think, yeah, availability, being there, genuine uh, empathy, care, trust. I think communication and trust are vastly underrated in, in the emphasis that they get. It's not about imagery and self-talk. and It's trust and communication, openness. Yeah. If you can do that, you can be just average in everything else, and you're going to be a success. I don't care. No one ever asked me what my degree was in, whether I was a CMPC or AASPCCC or <laughs> licensed. No, I never got any of those questions from, from the AD on down to the, to the present day. Never been asked that stuff. But... They are interested in, are you someone who will listen to them? Are you someone who can trust, who probably knows something that might be of help? If you've got just those requirements, you're going to get a shot. And then it's pretty much up to you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. We, um, I, I remember like as a young consultant and then now teaching, telling students, like you just never really know like how something that may seem so small, like just doing the right thing and cleaning up the sweat or filling up a water bottle, but people notice that. And I think, especially in athletics, feeling like there's someone that they can trust and somebody who's going to communicate with them. It's just, I mean, you can't put it. That's it's immeasurable. Some of those little things that I think, like you said, just they make all the difference. Yeah. That field goal kicker I mentioned previously. A lot of times I like to ask athletes that I work with on a regular basis, kind of, as they're leaving the university and going on with their life, could you help me understand a little bit what, what, why you kept coming back? What, what it was that 
maybe you derive from these interactions. And, and he said, I think it was just the, the main thing was that I had somebody who would listen to me. I appreciated just your listening. Yeah. That's not rocket science, but it is, it has to be intentional. And, right. and I think athletes and coaches, they know fakes. They know people that are just kind of given the, you know, the superficial message and feigning interest. And they see right through that. They'll be polite, but you won't get a probably second shot. Right. That's good stuff. Wow. Thank you so much. I love those stories. Uh, so you've talked about this a little bit, and I think in your own research, we've seen some of some of the changes in, in the field or what it looked like. But prior to your presidential service, so pre-2005, how would you describe the field of sport and exercise psychology? Um, and then what you feel like was particularly like relevant or significant in that time frame? Well, as I said, I, you know, I, I had no background. So those first few conferences, I was just kind of a fly on the wall. I was, I was not only going to the meetings, but I was trying to observe. But it didn't take long for me to realize, and my, my training was in physical education, which became kinesiology, that um, there were licensed psychologists who realized that if they wanted to do sports psych, they needed to get to something like ASP because they're not getting that in their meetings. So they started showing up in some numbers and carving out a niche and starting to kind of reconceptualize sports psych in, in their, from their frame of reference. And with not a lot of dialogue with the sports science people. So you had this implicit to explicit tension between the psychology trained and the kinesiology trained. And, and, and you could feel it. It was, it was tangible. And the comments in sessions, uh, put-downs, um, wasn't real always cordial. It was like there was a turf war starting to go on here. Because we have very few opportunities, right? Not a lot of positions available. So the competition was stiff. So that was going on. This growing tension between members of ASP with the PE background and the psych background. Um, in an interesting way, at the same time, the USOC, United States Olympic Committee, um, began to consider, this was after the U.S. got its tail handed to it by the Russians in the late 70s. They began to think, you know, the Russians are using sports psychology, so we probably ought to do it too, but they didn't know how to go about it. So there was a lot of, as you can imagine, early competition among people interested in working for the, our Olympic Committee with a sport background versus a psych background, the USOC developed three categories of, of services. And one was kind of the performance piece, one was kind of the mental health counseling piece, and the third was research. So they were interested in psychological research to look probably at the impact of this stuff on the app. Does it make a difference? Is it? So that suggested to me that there's room for everybody here. You know, and that came from the USOC. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, winner-loser. It's more a matter of where and how might each of us fit in, depending on our training and our interest uh, and our skills. So that was that that emerged. Um, and then there was also the 
there are the haves and the have-nots when it comes to money in athletic departments. And the, and the NC2A decided that it wasn't fair for a Tennessee to be able to employ someone to work with Tennessee athletes. And Carson Newman University doesn't have that money. So they got real, real strict about access of our folks to NC2A athletes. And I remember Penny McCullough and I went out to Overland Park, Kansas, met with the NC2A compliance officer. We tried to reason with this individual about what we have to offer and could we come up with something. And basically he listened and gave us the kind of the pushback and said, you know, you probably have a, a point, but we're going to have to wait a while. So that was, that was the answer. So there was this resistance in the uh, in the NC2A to employ the folks that were you know meeting with at ASP conferences. Um, I think they viewed us as, as a special privilege. If, if you wanted to hire, say, Dan Gould to work with your athletes at wherever he happened to be, that meant you might have to fire the defensive backs coach because you don't have so many coaches. They viewed him as coaches. And, uh, you know, football teams aren't going to fire the defensive back, no matter how good Gould might be uh, as a male training person. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was going on. So those, those, I think, were the three main uh, events, trends, um, activities going on. The tension between our own within ASP over turf, Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? Who isn't going to do it? What does that require? And the psych people wanted everybody to be licensed. That didn't fly very well. It wasn't a real fuzzy, cozy environment. Um, it was passionate. People had uh, the one unifying interest was sport and working with performers. But in terms of who should do it, what their credentials should be, that was dependent on the lens the person was using to, to frame it. I think one of the reasons that we received such a good reception with UT Athletics is that our athletic department, they, they decided what, what they wanted to do was to develop a, a team of resource people that would meet to discuss the various challenges of their student athletes. So we had athletic trainers, we had strength coaches, we had um, compliance people, we had sports psychology, we had team physicians. And, and it was kind of nice because we didn't see each other as competitive. We saw each other as, it's kind of like this metaphor of spokes in a wheel with the athlete at the center. And we are all converging to try to give that athlete what that athlete needs most at a particular point in time. So if a, let's say I'm working with an athlete in a, in a, in a in a particular sport that requires strength. We could develop a mental plan for competing, but if, it, if what's coming up in our sessions is this athlete just really perceives that they just can't match the physical strength of their opponents, well, then I need to talk to the strength coach. So, and I think that's, to me, a model that should work for our field. We don't all do the same thing, but if we can keep the important pieces, the person we're serving in the center, and to what extent are we converging our respective skills to meet the needs of that person and not competing with each other? Well, I think that that, that last aside is critical too. Um, 
that's such an important, I think, consideration, uh, especially, well, certainly then and continues to, to this day. Um, if I guess we fast forward to 2000, I guess it would have been 2004, maybe, when you got a, a phone call or on that landline or maybe in the office or an email um, asking you to consider running for president. Um, you know, what, uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe what motivated you to say, okay, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a shot. I think it goes back to the previous question. I really thought that this field had great potential, but we're just fighting each other. So I guess I had a desire to improving the communication organization wide. Everybody's got a voice. Everybody's got a place at the table. So I wanted to improve that among the different constituencies within the, the organization and, and, and address, seriously address concerns with two-way communication. Let's talk about this. Let's listen to each other. Let's see what we can come up with. And um, John Silva at that time, the, the founder of ASP, but he was big on accrediting graduate programs, looking at specific graduate training models. But I, I still think accreditation of grad programs is premature. When, when, when there aren't that many people doing this work full time, I don't know about you guys, but my department would never allow two or three faculty, full time to vote two or three faculty to work with a total of maybe nine students. Um, where are the practicum experiences? I, I, I just think logistically it's, at best premature, um, and I'm not sure it's necessary to accredit. So who cares, you know, if it's an accredited program? Yeah, no one's ever asked me what I, where I went to school, what I trained in, and I assume it's going on. You, you guys would know better than I about that. But those were, um, I think, the main components. And I really enjoyed the executive board because it had representation of people both with counseling training. Jack Lessig, for example, was on the mm -hmm. board. So you, you saw really a nice cross-section of reasonable folks coming from basic training models that were a little different, but pretty much on the same page. We, we, we worked it out. If the executive board, could that mood could have been spread to the whole organization, we would have been fine, but that wasn't the case. So that's that was kind of my thing. I didn't know how much impact I would have. I know that probably the one thing that um, organization-wide that, that changed somewhat the um, perception of the organization, uh, John Silva did not like. We changed the name, right. oh, shortened it. And he's, I don't think he's ever forgiven me for that. I guess I've never thought about the fact that the vote so the vote happened at the conference or people voted prior to the conference, but they were counted at the conference. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it, huh? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was because I remember yeah, there weren't votes sent in pre before that. Yeah. Those, those business meetings as you kind of alluded to Dr. Risberg, um, used to be somewhat, like you said, very passionate. Uh, and that was a passionate business meeting, um, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, people made good points. Actually, Jack Lessig was the one that really advanced that initiative, and I kind of agreed with him. I mean, 
by the time you when when somebody says so so what is this organization? By the time you got the whole name out, they were gone. You know, you lost their attention. Well, I'm with the Association for the Advancement of Applied for Huh? Just association for Applied Sports Site. We're an association and we do applied sports site. But then they some wanted applied sport and exercise site. In in 30 seconds, we talk about the elevator thing. I think this shorter title probably works better on the elevator. So speaking to that impact that you mentioned, what were you hoping to accomplish in your three kind of term years? Um, and then what would you say were your main accomplishments as president? Oh, I, don't, I think basically I've shared with you kind of, I was hoping just to have a kinder, gentler organization, uh, one that we're not wasting all our energy and time and huddling up and fighting each other and, it was pretty. It was pretty nasty. There, and they actually had a few sessions. Um, there was a guy by the name of Frank Gardner who was a clinical psychologist, and he couldn't understand why teams didn't want to work with him. And he thought it was because of somehow we were somebody was sabotaging him or something. There was another Canadian. He was. I think he might have been Canadian. But anyway. I'll take a thing of the guy who ended up working with the New York Rangers. Gardner had, I don't know how he got hired, but he got hired by the Rangers and he lasted about a month and was fired. And then this other guy came in and knew, knew something about hockey and related well and was doing great. So I don't think it had anything to do with being, you know, backstabbed. And he was doing it on his own. He was doing a fine job of just showing his true colors and athletes saw through it. And so there was, again, this was tangible. I guess that's again, so if we can get that kind of calm down a little bit and everybody feel like they have a voice. I do, I do think, you know, there's, there's some concern about how big we can get and how much we can do well. Are there still three sections? Um, I think the last time I tuned in, it was, performance psychology, was it constant clinical, and then um, social psych of sport or something like that? And exercise. exercise is in there somewhere. Not Yeah, not anymore. What What is it now? There are no pillars. There, so there aren't any of these separate. Oh, actually, no, no. It was an interesting, you know, to your point, um, it was interesting because I, I remember that business meeting too, um, and one of the words that came up frequently, um, was si like silo and are, are, is there an infrastructure, you know, um, are we doing certain things, you know, with those pillars, um, where we are not intentionally, um, but is the effect where we're actually siloing, creating silos of, of colleagues, um, and, and professionals where working kind of in opposition to to what your what your goal was, which was to try to remove the yeah. you know those barriers. Yeah. So so yeah, those were we well, yeah. those were voted out. Yeah. That, that social side, they were the ones that really felt like stepchildren. No one cared about them. Their numbers were dwindling. Nobody came to their meetings, their presentations. They were moaning and groaning, and some of them just went off to other. And sometimes that's the way it works. You know, attrition. People just realize this isn't uh, this isn't the place for me. I need to go somewhere that works for me. 
And that, that, that sometimes takes a while because some want to try to change it from within and that's sometimes works, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it feels like, and based on what you're saying is the organization was too small to have all of these like different subsets and also too big to like not. So yeah. it seems like it's almost like a you're in a hard place of, of what that might look like. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. It's, it's interesting. And, and really one of the things we're learning as we continue to do this podcast is, you know, we're interviewing, you know, all of these past presidents that served at such different times in the history of not just the field, but the organization. And I think, you know, um, it, it, it is very clear, uh, certainly to us, because we have the honor and the privilege of listening to these stories, and these experiences, but, you know, to the to the listeners that you know that have listened to the different episodes, um, I, I wonder, and I suspect that, that that becomes pretty evident too. That we've had we have you know presidents that are trying to lead during what are probably really really difficult times. Probably more difficult than maybe what's um, being led on, just in terms of you know when you're in those meetings and when you're you know all the behind the scenes stuff and, and everyone's a volunteer. Yeah. Um, and have full-time jobs and it's just this is not easy work um and so to hear some of the stories and 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 get a sense of what things were like at these different you know um you know points within the development of the organization is is really at least for me has been one of the really kind of fascinating pieces of of being able to hear about you know uh, being able to, to to talk to others like yourself um so i think you know, you're, that, the period you describe, which I, I certainly remember um, as a young grad student, um, and I didn't by any means understand probably 90% of what was really no. going on at the time. No. Um, but in hindsight, you know, hearing you describe it, I have no doubt that those were some very difficult, uh, some difficult moments, but also, you know, some pretty um, important, important moments too. Yeah. I think I think this is relevant here, Brandon. But the the perception was that some of the presidents coming on board had an agenda. It wasn't about everybody has a place at the table. Let's get communication. No, we're going in this direction. And some loved that direction, and others said, "What?" You know, whether out loud or not, and push back. And yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that advanced anything, um, which is another reason why we ought to take that word out of the title. I don't think there was much advancement going on. There was a lot of, I suppose, some inertia, but I'm not sure where, where we were headed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, politics, you know, politics yeah. shape a lot of these kinds of groups and organizations and sometimes more than others, but the organizations and the groups I like the best are the ones that kind of try to stay on the same page and let's be respectful and let's see where we can all fit in. There's a place for everybody and let's, let's work together. Well, you've shared a number of stories with us. Um, so what we're going to do, this is kind of a part of the podcast um, that we never really know. We've had some really good, <laughs> some very interesting responses here. But are what we call our story break, um, where we kind of get away from 
some of the the kinds of questions we've been um, you know talking about and um, move in the direction of uh, turning things over to you to maybe share a, a story with us and with the the listeners about um, you know something fun that that comes to mind when you think about your time in the field. It can be anything. Um, you know, related to ASP or, or sports psychology, we do offer bonus points if you involve some of um, other like ASP members in the story. The points don't mean anything, so there are no. Uh, but you did say you're a competitive person, so I do want to at least highlight that. Um, you know, we can award as many points as, as probably you would like. Um, but as you think about uh, you know some of the fun things, uh, you know that come to mind. Any particular stories you, know, you care you know, to share? This is my shortest section. Now, in terms of what are the characteristics of ASP, the ASP experience? Pain, tension, arguing. (laughs) Where's the fun? There's a couple funnies. And one goes back to the Banff conference. Did any of you attend that one? No. No. It's been a it's been a crowd favorite though. It, it was it was held uh, in Canada between the middle of October and the middle of I mean middle of September and middle of October. Well, unbeknownst to the program organizers, that and this was a campus type site. This wasn't like in a hotel. So the meetings were held in campus buildings where you would walk from one building to the other. Right. And it's kind of out in the wild too. Well, that period of time in the fall is the what's called the elk rut time. That's when elk mate. <laughs> and if you ever see, you know, National Geographic specials, you see elk, they're budding heads. And so I, the thing that stands out for me most was seeing ass participants, they come out of a building. <laughs> they look both ways. Ready? <laughs> that was there, but I think we made it. Let's go. And they're running with their bags and stuff. And this bull elk chasing them into the next building. And they, I don't think anyone was killed or injured, but that was the most exciting aspect of that. Other than I lost to Duda in the presidential election. And and another one that, this is how I'm straining for another one. It's kind of funny. Um, one of the things I was proud of, did we cover number five? Where it says, what do I think my main accomplishments were? Because four dealt with, why did I start doing it? Um, yeah, a little bit, but we can certainly go like go back and expand upon that. Because I, I think there are some things in there that might be worth mentioning. I was the first president I think of at ASP. I was the first to invite as a keynote a Paralympic athlete. And I was the first to invite, I think, an African-American coach as a keynote speaker. Um, His sisters and wife um, were Olympic athletes. And I was also the first, I think, to invite, who was a colleague of mine at UT. He was from Sierra Leone originally but studied cultural studies, he did cultural studies. So he presented a, a keynote on a topic of cu- cons- cultural considerations in sports psychology. 
I don't remember anybody talking about that before then. That has become more prominent since then. Right. Here's a guy who has no background in sport, but he does understand cultural studies, and he really presented a, you know, a, a great kind of an entree for our members into cultural aspects of yeah, athletes' so lives. This guy's name is Handel Wright, very large African black. And the conference that I was organizing was in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, Louisville, Kentucky is the home of uh, a bat company. They make bats for Major League Baseball, the Louisville Sluggers. And we always give your keynote speakers a little souvenir. So it would be kind of cool to get a little Louisville Slugger bat. It had ASP 2007 or whatever, and it had their name on it, Handle Right. Well, I could not believe how these people were just treasuring these. I thought it was kind of novel, but I had no idea how, I mean, there were tears in their eyes when they got these things. Well, it turns out Handel in flying out Somebody must have gone through his bag and they took his little bat. Oh, no. <laughs> I remember it calling me in my office like the next Monday. Craig, I, 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 this is terrible. Handle, handle, what happened? Somebody stole my bat. <laughs> could, I, could I get another bat? I think we can probably do that, Handle. So I called the Louisville Slugger Factory and they made him another bat. And they mailed it out to him and he called back and just, he was so, so appreciative that he got, he got his bat. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> an, an African that probably didn't even know what baseball was about prized his bat and and asked members literally running for their lives between sessions. <laughs> Chased by bull mooses in they call it in rut. It's kind of like a male version of heat, I guess. And because the females are in heat. And these guys are, they're heart attack serious. <laughs> so good. So that's pretty much, yeah. I'll leave it to the other presidents to talk about all the <laughs> and Probably if I had a beer or two, I could probably think of some. <laughs> we keep joking that uh, the next iteration of this is going to be like asked and answered after dark because some of the stories that we have gotten, like once we've stopped recording, are so funny. But also, people are like, we cannot, we cannot put that out there. <laughs> yeah. Do you want? Do you want to back up? Um, yeah, let, let me just. Right, I can kind of go through this. You asked me to talk about what I think my main accomplishments were. I don't like to talk about what I think my main accomplishments were. I, I, th I think of the athletic director at UT who put me on retainer to work with athletes. He must have had some reason to think that might be valuable. But I encounter him from time to time. Say, hey, Craig, so can you give me a good news story? And how do you know what you're doing is making a difference? My answer was always the same. I said, Coach Dickey, really, I can tell you anything, but I think if you want to know what kind of difference I'm making, uh, I can give you the names of some of the athletes and coaches I've worked with and ask them. So I kind of feel that way here. Um, I, I prefer to let others speak to what they think my accomplishments, and that might be a real short interview. Um, particularly if it's John Silva, he probably won't. Um, well, I did talk about the most controversial decision was the shortening of the title. We've talked about that. And I was the first president to extend invitations to 
the Paralympic athlete. J.J. Clark is the track coach. Joanna Clark and his, it was his sister and his wife all they all they were gold medalists track and field. Um, I got some pushback from that because this is another aspect of ASP. I don't know if it's still existent. I think the big criticism of people in NASPA when ASP when Silva left and to, when when developed the organization was it would lose its academic scholarly integrity. They're not doing research there. It's just a bunch of people run around chasing athletes. Well, to have a, I think a lot of times the keynote speakers tended to be people who were academics, people who had done research and contributed to the knowledge base. And people that like that in ass, they love that. They weren't so hot listening to a women's track coach, even an elite one, talk about um, the mental demands of coaching at the, the Olympic level. I thought it was neat. And I think probably the same felt about the Paralympic athlete. Why are we devoting a keynote address for some admittedly challenged person um, when we could have had someone who could give us a, a, an update on the literature and the research in some particular area? But anyway, I, I still am glad I did it. And then Handel Wright had that other one. Um, I also oversaw the development of the first ASP position paper that was published on the website. And what I wanted to do was, was to get people from the various backgrounds. The committee was comprised of psychology trained people, sport trained people, um, like Kate Hayes, for example, was on it. Revisa was on it. And, I, and, the, and the title of the paper was something like um, how to choose a sports psychology consultant. So we talked about what are the different types of training? What are the different types of things that consultants do? So it gave people who were interested in maybe looking someone up what to look for. And the thing I really appreciate was, was the diversity of the committee and a unanimous support for the final product. I went to the website day before yesterday and that paper's not there anymore. There's a link that says ask position papers, but when you click on it, you get page not found. So I emailed Kent Lindemann, I think he's the kind of the head honcho, and just to see what's up, why is that not there anymore? Because I think it's still relevant. I mean, it's still, I think the main questions people ought to ask when they're going about the task of trying to find someone. I thought that was a a really important contribution. And I would have liked to see it on the cover page, actually, of the link instead of kind of buried in the website. I think we covered the rest. Yeah, that's great. And I think um, to your point about how now there is more of a focus on um, talking about issues related to cultural diversity and having Paralympians and, and different perspectives. And so it's it's great to hear that that started somewhere. Hopefully there was minimal pushback, but. Yeah, at least it kind of got the toe in the water, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Something to think about, you know, while we're fighting over who ought to work with the five available athletes in the country that might be interested in our services. Huh. 
Uh, that brings us uh, into our next question quite well, a good transition here. In what ways do you feel like the field of sports psychology has evolved? And then what are your thoughts, both good and bad or neutral, I suppose, about that evolution? As far as the field, if I'm just you know, lay, kind of a lay person, but I do have a background, I think it's fair to say that we, we're getting more exposure in the mainstream media. Um, and in, in sport, I mean, it's not uncommon at all anymore to hear commentators at a golf tournament talk about golfer who's worked with a sports psychologist, uh, track athletes, tennis players. It seems like a lot of the professional athletes have someone in their little team that works with them on their mental game. Um, and then, of course, the you know the, the issues that came out of the last Olympics with some of the athletes that withdrew over mental health concerns. Um, that brought a lot of attention to to those in our in our number who do mental health counseling with athletes. I, I always wondered why why they should call themselves sports psychologists and not just psychologists. If you're working on mental health and you're not really addressing sport, you're addressing just the challenges of life and living. I don't I don't I guess I don't know how that translates into this the athlete's sporting experience, but but we do have folks that do that. Um, and I, I'm, 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 I don't know if this trend is continuing, but I know I've seen two or three NC2A Division I job announcements that have included in the desired credentials, ASP certification, that CMPC thing. I wonder where they got that. And if, in fact, that's making a difference, you don't see that so much in professional sports. They're not. They're not looking. I don't think, it, to my knowledge, they're not looking at that credential. But professional sport has always had clinical psychologists who work with athletes in drug addiction and alcohol abuse and things. But a number of our graduates are working with major league teams at the minor league level on performance issues you know, pre-pitch routines, you know, develop, developing in their younger players the correct mental approach to competing. So that's that's been very promising, but that's at the professional level. I think NC2A D1, the motivation mainly is about eligibility and violations, you know, drug testing. How do you know your people aren't violating the rules? And sometimes they'll bring in a psychologist to make those calls. That's my take as to those that are hiring licensed psychologists. I know I know of a few that that were hired in the SEC um, that didn't last long. They were only I, I, no one showed up, so I don't know why that happened. Because I I met them at conferences and stuff. They seem like nice folks, but for whatever reason. They, they just weren't um, connecting. And it goes back to what I said, I think, at the very beginning of this interview. You know, the three things we emphasize at Tennessee when you meet or have an opportunity to meet with an athlete is can you develop trust and communication? Um, are you, have, do you have good communication skills? And are you able to 
give athletes some sense as to why working with you might be beneficial in some way. Because there is the presumption they think that might be the case, but they don't know exactly sure what you do. That's that's the other thing I work with in the first session. I tell them about my approach um, to looking at performance issues. I, I, I look at them through a couple lenses. One is the relationship between how people use their attention, the attention performance relationship and focusing, and the other is emotional control, emotional regulation. And um, that's 95% of anything I bring, and that mainly comes from the motor learning literature. Um, I'm not sure how, how this, I call it the new and improved certification procedure has helped where they're going through some type of a certification, some group that certifies psychology professionals. And it changed from something that was done internally within ASS with ASS members that reviewed applications and then determined who was certified, who wasn't. Um, and, And I think one thing that I thought was a big mistake, and they went with, I think, the recommendation of the certifying people is they wanted everybody to go back and go through the same process to become certified. Can you imagine Ken Revisa being asked to go through the CMPC process so he could be listed in among asked certified consultants? As if that will just jack up all the numbers of athletes who are going to work with him. I'm, I'm not, I've always been skeptical as to the extent to which it really makes a difference. It didn't with me. Um, I think they're looking at other things, but I'd like to see maybe some research on that. You know, people who are certified, you know, if you could get some way, um, some survey data from people they've worked with, you know, anonymous, it's confidential. What do they do? How often, how many are, how many are working with them? What's the frequency? What do they do? It's kind of like a black box. I don't know. There's a lot of people with this with this credential that I know for a fact aren't doing a thing with athletes, but they like that on their V-Dare. They can put that on their business card. And again, I, I said mentioned this earlier, I don't know to what extent Silva has dropped his his um, initiative to get asked accreditation of grad programs. Do you know anything about that? Is that going anywhere? It is actually. Um, so there's an it's they're currently um i think in the comment stage but they've started a draft of what the different program requirements would be we actually had a meeting um with other grad uh scott barnacle was on that call um with grad directors just asking about like the feasibility and and what that might look like so it's moving forward for for what we know have they met with department heads of college department i mean academic departments uh like deans and chairs and stuff okay no i don't i don't think that that's happened yet um because i think it's still at the um like input level of what some of the requirements might look like but in that call a lot of people did bring up kind of as you mentioned about their deans or their chairs um maybe not being on board with some of the faculty to student ratios or or something yeah you know i think it depends on what the proposal is you know if it's the way I perceive John's 
desire to be, I can't imagine many getting on board with that. It's just requesting way more. I mean, it's just like an ideal. I mean, it'd be nice if the world operated that way, but that's just my own take. Uh, it just seems unrealistic to me. Particularly going back, I don't know about you guys, but I retired before the emphasis on chasing grant money became real big in our department. I think if, <laughs> if that had been the case when I applied, or not applied, but took the job at UT, I wouldn't have taken the job. I don't want to spend my time writing grant proposals. I love the teaching. I love the research. I love the working with when I got the opportunity to work with athletes. Um, somebody, people are good at it, and some people have access to funds. I'm not sure our field is one that's rich in grant money, and I think it's some, a waste of some real good faculty's time to have them, you know, writing proposals that get denied. You know, when they could be using that time more productively in what they do well. So I don't care what Silva says, that's not to go, they're gonna to have to spend some time doing that, which gives them, makes even less time dedicated to putting together this state-of-the-art grad program in sport and exercise psych. That's what, sure. I, this is a big caveat. Anything I have to say about the state of the field right now should be relegated to the bottom of the list because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, since I retired, I don't have a website now. Okay. I did work with UT athletes. I did a few TV interviews, but since I retired, I, I keep a list of all the people that I've worked with. It's, it's been like 230 athletes, local athletes. And most of them know who I am either through what they've seen in these little interviews on TV, or they know somebody in athletics, or they know some of the UT coaches that are, remember me, or they know some of the athletes that work with me, or more often lately, it's they know or the parents find out from other parents of kids that work with me. You know, Scott is now at UT. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking, I know he's really had a lot of success marketing uh, what we do and getting students connected. He's going to oversee the practicum experiences of our grad students. Up until him, you know, when they'd come to me, I'd say, well, I'll just um, send out an email to some of the coaches in town and introduce yourself and ask them if you, if they would mind, if you, you know, you're a student in sports psych, if they would mind if you just showed up and observe, you're interested in, just observing their work. And that's the way they did it. And a lot of them developed connections with some local high schools that are still in place. Just doing it with no super, I mean, other than they check in with us, but they did all of the groundwork themselves and sold themselves and, and have passed it on. They even developed this kind of its own mentoring model where maybe a couple of doctoral students will work with a women's soccer team at Maryville College and a couple first-year doctoral students will observe, you know, kind of shadow them. So by the time they graduate, then the next one move in. So that's all them. That's all they did. Scott's going to be like, you know, a luxury compared to what it's been in the past. Those resources, though, faculty resources. Yeah, and he's, he's been able to get money from people. He's gone to our law school. I haven't talked to him about that. So 
help me, Scott, understand what, what is a PhD student in sports psych going to talk to lawyers about? But he'll, he'll have an answer. I mean, lawyers are performers, right? Sure, absolutely. So anybody that's doing any kind of performance, and that's the other thing. I, I like that broader umbrella. I, I, I call myself a performance consultant, not a sports psych consultant. Does anything that's performed, particularly in front of an audience under pressure, with state with outcomes that matter, I think are candidates for what we do. Well, so what, you know, one of the other things that we're really interested in, and I, and I think you touched upon some of this already in terms of certification, accreditation. You know, you, you talked about your perspe uh, perspective on the evolution of feel we're interested in, in something very similar with ASP as an organization. Um, my, I guess my caveat or what I, I, I real quick before you, you know, talk a little bit about that. I, I want to go back if I could real quickly to something you said about how your, your responses to some of these questions should be put like, you know, towards the bottom of the, of the, whatever we're housing them in. Um, <laughs> The, the, um, you 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 raise a, I don't know if an issue, but not in a bad way. Of, you know, one of the things that we've actually heard from a number of past presidents who have kind of taken a step back from ASP or or sports psych for any you know number of reasons is you know, oh I don't you know I haven't been involved in so long I don't really know how much I have to share or what I can say. You know, that would be all that, that helpful for something like this. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this is there is no historian. Um, there is no centralized kind of collection of these stories and these experiences. Um, and, and so I guess, number one, you know, so again, thank you for, you know, being willing to share these stories and these experiences. Um, and, and whatever the gap is between when we have the, the privilege to talk to, to you and to others that may have, um, you know, not been to a conference in a little while, um, those stories and those those experiences are, are so important because we don't, beyond them, them just being fascinating, um, there's so many people that need to hear this that we, we want them to be able to, um, you know, go back and listen to what things maybe used to be like. At some point in time, um, and so we really appreciate you know your willingness to be able to share with you know what you do know and what your current um, you know beliefs and perspectives are. Um, and so I guess that just to kind of you know um, make mention of that is that that's so important to us, and really one of the reasons why we wanted to do this in the first place is because um, you know you mentioned um, you know Bert Gygus at one point and. What a wonderful human being that, you know, that the field, you know, lost not that long ago. One of, of unfortunately, you know, several. Um, and, you know, we won't have the opportunity to hear directly from him, you know, in terms of some of these specific questions. Um, and, and so we certainly just, we just appreciate the opportunity to get, you know, be able to document, you know, what each of these experiences might be for whatever they might, you know, include, um, happy times or, or not, not so happy times. And so, you know, I guess along those same lines uh, is what you were just talking about in terms of the evolution of the field. How would you describe that with ASP, um, in terms of where, you know, ASP as an organization would be moving at, at, the, at this point? 
you know, again, not having been connected for a number of years, it's hard for me to answer that. I, I occasionally get over lunch comments from colleagues that still go, but the conversation doesn't last long. You can interpret that any way you want. It sounds to me like it's pretty much the way it was when I was there. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Brad. I think sometimes when working with teams, um, I don't know where I got this. It might have been, might have been Revisor or Orlick. But when I'm meeting with a team at the beginning of a season, um, asking them to think about moving forward in time, maybe 25 years. Have you heard that? No, Let's say we have the 25th talking. year banquet of the 19 of the 2023 South Doyle High School football team, and people will come that remember you guys from back then, and you'll have a banquet, and then they'll have somebody will speak, and then the the audience will be asked, "What do you remember about those that team?" And then the question is, what would you want them to say? I think with ASP, what I remember about ASP, I think it did help me get into presentations, and I would kind of pick and choose where I obtained some information that I thought might work for me. But it was very, it's a very distant feel. It's almost like going, it's almost like going, Googling something. Going to a website, you can pick up that information. I didn't ever sense a feeling of family, a feeling of togetherness, a feeling of who are we after, at the end of the day. You know, if people that have experienced our organization or our conference were asked, what stood out for you in that experience? What would you want them to say? Because I don't think we've ever entertained that question. And maybe the answer would be, I don't give a crap what they think. You know, we're going to do our thing. And if they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. I don't think that's the case. Um, and maybe the, the logistics are too overwhelming to really look at ways of forging more of an identity. So that when people say ASP, or when people talk about the ASP credential, it's like they know what it is. And they, they, they've heard of it. And they... And not only have they heard of it, but they've heard good things about it. So I don't know. That's where I think it is. Uh, maybe that's that's as, as it should be because it is a resource. And I, I would hope even those early grad students that come to one conference got one or two things that they could use, even if they never show up again. But I think a lot of them leave there and go on and feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. Like this, the promises weren't really kept. You know, the, the dream didn't last long. My vision of maybe actually spending some of my life assisting people who care about what they do in sport to, to pursue goals and achieve their dreams. I, 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 that's not gonna happen. We are a resource. The website isn't perfect, but it does give some connections for people to go to sites to, to get some basic information to help them kind of understand what's going on. Um, 
And you can access this resource on our website. You can access this resource um, at our conference. Um, I think the I almost get the impression the student conferences are more popular than the, the big one. Our students love going to the ones where even people from West Virginia show up. <laughs> it's, it's more intimate, and number is a big deal, too. I mean, the larger the number, the less you have in terms of family feel. But, um, yeah, I think they really get the feeling that there's some promise still here. Mm-hmm. In, in that in that particular environment, so um, I am I'm, I'm kind of reserving, you know, where I stand. I think I don't think it's going to it's going to do any damage anymore than it's done up till now. And in in most cases, it's been probably more helpful than not. And if the that the old tensions are gone, I don't know if that's the case. But if those went away, because that was a tan- I, I thought a very tangible part of that experience, it was unnecessary. There's no need to be fighting over turf. Um, I thought I like to show a lack of professionalism and other things. So if that's gone, and now it really is just a kind of a space for sharing what's being done, what's the research saying, what's the latest um, uh, techniques, approaches, strategies for people to hear about and decide which ones are for them, then I think it's it's worth it. It's worth having and worth continuing. And um, yeah. So with that, what advice do you have for students and new professionals entering the field now? So Katie, after this interview, what advice do you have for students? <laughs> it sounds like connections and just, you know, like you said, at the beginning, serendipity had a really big, played a really big piece in your experiences. So just being connected to the right people, yeah, or yeah. not being scared to get connected to the right people would be yeah, something the right different. place at the right time. Yeah, <laughs> attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know there were certain people when I when I went through the when I get to my room at the conference and I go to the program, I'm going over that program, and there's some sessions I'm going to. Because I know that those are going to be good. Um, it's yeah, ma- making yourself accessible and also accessing, paying attention to who's good. I think modeling is a good thing. Who's who is successful? You know, I talked about doing a study looking at the relationship between certification and success. However, you might want to measure at least or at least use by athletes. But. Um, yeah, that and back to Katie's point, my, I have two brothers. One is a retired minister, and he worked with youth for a while. And he said he remember when he first started working with them, he would just wear himself out trying to motivate the whole group. And it occurred to him that there are some kids that are raring to go. He called them the goers. So after realizing that, he decided his approach was to be to go with the goers, not not get bogged down with the eors and the naysayers and the negativity and and once he kind of you know turned them loose and got behind them it just took off so i think who are the goers in the organization those are the people that maybe um can be conduits for you know the, the people coming out um but yeah 
So in a way, my advice is pretty much the same as it's always been. And you want to learn as much as you can about your craft. You know, what are the theories? What are the conceptual models that are out there that are viable? And that's mainly through, you know, the schooling, but also conferences. And what are the requisite skills for practicing if you want to practice? But I think that, I think, as I mentioned before, that communication and trust are, are not emphasized enough. Um, I also, when, when I would interview people who wanted to do graduate work at Tennessee, the question I would ask them is, so let's assume that you get into this field. What do you want to do with athletes? What is it that you want to do? And if their answer was something like, well, I want to be the go-to whenever they're struggling in life or something like that. Well, then I would say, well, that's very noble, but you don't want to come here because that's not what we do here. What we do here is we try to assist our students with developing the skills to allow them to work with athletes to meet the demands, mental and emotional demands of their sport, uh, mainly focusing and emotional control. And then I would refer them to programs where they could get that kind of training. So it wasn't like we're better, we're just different. And this would not be a fit for you. I think that's just being honest. Um, yeah, so if you do that, you know, if you get in a, in a good grad program, you get a, a good supervision, good knowledge base, um, stay on top of the literatures. I, I think it's a good idea to, to watch as much sporting competition as you can. I find in the consulting sessions with particularly golfers and tennis players, I watch those matches on the TV and so do they. So we can talk about, you know, did you see what um, Djokovic did in the third set? Oh yeah, and we talk about a specific moment where it could have gone south, what did you notice him doing? If you don't do that, then you know, if you do do that, that says to them, you're somebody that's really paying attention to how this stuff plays out in actual competitive sport. And then, like Katie says, be around people that um, know what they're doing and, and, are, and also the kind of people. I think, it's also, I think it's about watching what they know, hearing what they know, but also looking at how they relate. Because athletes are people too, coaches are people too. And, but exposing yourself to a variety of, of models and approaches and which one really resonates with you, which one is consistent with what you see yourself to be about. What are your priorities? What are your values? And uh, yeah, and then practice. That's one thing Joe Whitney talks a lot with his athletes. He's working on their mental game. You know, it's just like the physical skills. You want to get good mentally, you want to get tough mentally, practice mentally. You know, practice incorporating the mental routines in your training sessions. Don't wait till the game. So that it's just what you do. Just, right. Yeah. Um, that kind of stuff. Thanks, Katie, for that. I appreciate it. Thank you. I wrote down a lot. Yeah. So. yeah that's, I think that, like, that's great advice for anybody in the field, not just for students, but really a lot of- yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. If we stop learning, you know, stop learning. Yeah.
And, and frankly, back to my point earlier about that phenomenological approach to consulting, any improvements I've made since I retired have been because of what athletes have told me about their experiences. Mm -hmm. Because they are different in 2023 than they were in 2011. Sure. In some respects. And I wouldn't know that if I wasn't listening to them and getting them from them. So they keep me up to date too. That experience, that phenomenological data is very valuable. What's life like right now? I can't imagine, can you, with the social media the way it is? One question, Joe, Joe Whitney's done a cute little interview, it's been like 10 years ago, but they asked about how do the media affect athletes? And Joe's answer was basically, well, it affects different ones in different ways. You know, the high profile sports, where they're getting a lot of attention in the media and who care about what people think are going to be affected more than those who are in sports that really don't aren't that high profile or really don't care what people think, you know? So there is no, no single answer, but I think he covered it. A lot of times our answers, I think to questions about what to do is, well, it depends, right? Who's the person? What's the situation? What's the challenge? What's the goal? And if you can get the answers to that, now we can talk about maybe the best approach. So this one size fits all is not to me at all relevant to sports psychology. It's Dr. Ed Etzel's favorite answer to every question is it depends. Yeah, I, I don't agree with Ed on a lot of things, but <laughs> I think he nailed that one. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, I think this next question um, sometimes poses a challenge for different reasons. Because um, if we could ask other people this question about you, we, cer we certainly would, and I, I'd be, love to know what they would say. But Dr. Risberg, what do you hope your impact on the field is going to be? So in, in your 25th reunion and people come back, what do you hope people are gonna say? I think I, think I tend to, think more locally. I think my impact on the field is fairly profound in the Knoxville area. You know, and sometimes I think that's the way to go about it. We're not going to save the world here. But if we, each of us, can make a difference in a positive way within our own sphere of influence, um, we are improving the field collectively. And conversely, if we screw up, in our local sphere of influence. I've, I don't have as many as I used to, but I, I remember used to get athletes that tried it and with somebody that just bombed. And three years later, they thought, well, maybe I'll give it another shot. I mean, it's too bad it took three years to get over a big negative experience. So, um, yeah, I again, athletes, teams in the Knoxville area, um, they know, they know about what I do and they know about what their kids, their athletes have benefited from. Um, yeah, so I, I think that when you say the field, I don't know that I made, you know, if you're talking about globally. I don't think anyone in Dusseldorf, Germany knows what I've been doing here. 
But if you're thinking, if you're talking about, and that's one thing with our graduates, is we do emphasize just making a difference where you are. Is and, and, and the proudest I am is when I hear about people like Taryn Morgan and Duncan Simpson and Greg Dale, and, or I'll go somewhere and somebody will come up, yeah, yeah. Do you know them? Yeah, I, I worked with him. Oh, really? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, make it have an impact that's positive. Because that's kind of the way I think real progress works. It's, was it Martin Luther King Jr. talking about justice? It's, it's, it takes a long time, but the arc of justice bends toward, you know, truth. But it's not going to happen overnight. And that was, that, that was, I think, a perception that, um, and maybe still is a perception for people who want to get in this field that I can, this, is, this isn't rocket science, I can just figure it And it isn't rocket science. But I remember one conference we were attending, Bob Rotella, who was at the University of Virginia for a while, and then he resigned his position to work with pro golfers. He was an invited speaker. And one of the grad students in the audience listened, he was just explaining his experience, stood up and says, I want to, I want to be who you are. I want to do what you do. And Rotella's answer was, well, I'll see you in 25 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was really well said. Thank you. For what it's worth, um, I don't know. Are you familiar with Truman State University? Yeah. So that's where I did my undergrad um, in exercise science. And they had like concentrations. And then there was like a concentration in um, it was like psychosocial aspects of sport. And I'm pretty sure it was about like 6,500 or so students um, at the university at the time. And I'll avoid giving the date so I don't age myself, um, you know, on the, on the podcast here. But uh, I think I was the only one in that concentration. And my advisor, who uh, happened to be a sports psychology, uh, you know, professional, taught our motor learning class. Um, so as an undergrad, um, you know, I go to pick up my books and everything for, for that semester. And of course, I probably know where I'm going with this now. Um, but our book for that class uh, had your name on it. And um, that was my first kind of exposure to, to Dr. Risberg and it's funny because Megan and I, I think yesterday were kind of talking as we were thinking about today and said, you know what, um, you know, cause I, and I, I, when I say this, I know it sounds really creepy. I don't mean it to sound creepy, but I've known who you are. I feel like in some ways, like I've, I've known more about you, um, since probably, you know, 2000. So, you know, 20 plus years, but I was like, I'm not sure if I've ever really ever had the like opportunity to sit down and if we've ever actually like chatted or, you know, I'm sure our paths have crossed, you know, maybe very briefly at a conference. Um, but, you know, to your point about, you know, local impact, um, I guess I just wanted to share a story with you that um, I, I think, and I, I can't imagine I'm the only one, um, that there's a lot of us that, you know, know who you are and the work that you've done. Um, and that started a, a long time ago. I don't mean to, I don't mean to make that, I'm not trying to age you either. I'm trying to no, keep won't. us both no, no. checking. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and so, 
that, um, but the fact that, you know, as, as you're talking about your background and how you came in the sports psych, and now that I'm thinking, I never thought about it until just, you know, today, the fact that my, you know, sports psychology trained, you know, advisor was the one who was teaching our, you know, our motor behavior course and is using your text in which to, to do that. I, I guess I kind of say, wow, um, because, you know, your, you know, idea and, and the thought about, um, although I know it's treated, you know, as separate disciplines, um, more so today, um, but the idea that there is overlap and that he certainly saw that and, and it probably influenced how he, he taught that class. Um, your impact was certainly um, far beyond Knoxville all the way to Kirksville, Missouri, uh, which is a, a pretty small town. Um, and, and I certainly um, thank you for, for that. And, and so for what it's worth, please know um, that, that your impact does extend well beyond the, the um, borders of, of Knoxville, Tennessee. Kirksville. Kirksville, Kirksville, Missouri. Kirksville, Missouri. That's correct. Yeah. Is, is that no? Was there a Northwest Missouri state there? So that, that used became to be Northeast Truman State. It was Northeast Missouri Northeast State. Became Truman State. Yep, that's correct. Yep, and we we very um, we refer to ourselves as the the Harvard of the Midwest, only because no one's ever heard of Truman State, and they can't they can't argue with us about it. So. Um, we, we say what we want. Yeah. And, um, well, I'm, I'm a native of St. Louis. Webster Groves is a suburb uh, of St. Louis. So, you know, it I'm, is as am I uh, oh, yeah. from where'd you go to high school? Yes, I am. Huh? Uh, I was in part, uh, the Parkway district. Parkway, I went my, to the North. my nephew went to Parkway West. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. World. Yeah. So small. Back to your comment about the book. There was a, a guy who's just come. He's a physical therapist who came to Knoxville a couple of years ago to begin a PhD program. And he emailed me. I never heard of the guy. And he said that his undergraduate course in motor learning used the book, if it's Schmidt and Risberg, Schmidt was that professor that I worked with, was like five years older than me. And when he asked me, he had written that book by himself about 10 years before and human kinetics wanted him to revise it and he didn't want to do it. And they said, well, can you find someone who would help you with it? So he asked me if I would do it. The one thing he emphasized in my rec letter was he said I was maybe the best writer that he had ever worked with. You can take that however you want. But the only condition I had for human kinetics, because to me, those motor learning books up to that point, it was like motor learning people talking to motor learning people. There wasn't anything of relevance to undergraduates. So if they would allow me, us, to revise this book in a way that would show how this stuff really works for practitioners, then I'll do it. And they, they went with it. And that first edition, that's actually second edition revision, became a bestseller. Schmidt said he couldn't believe how many of those books sold. And later at a conference he was talking about, he, he himself never really thought about how relevant the principles of motor learning were for practitioners. But this guy, the PT, said it's the only textbook in his undergraduate program that he did not sell back. He, wow. he kept. So I guess that's a compliment, you know. That's a that high a compliment. compliment. That's a very high compliment. Very you, high never, compliment. you know, you never know. You just do what seems right, seems best. And 
I, I really, I think as a professor, I always wanted to, to try to feel, make students feel like they were, they were important, but that um, it mattered that we looked at the relevance of stuff too. So what, you know, at the end of the day, when we're done with this course, what kind of working knowledge are we taking with us that's going to matter down the road? And if the answer is nothing, I don't even understand why we're offering the course. So I was very big on application. I think it's important to do evidence-based practice, but the evidence just in isolation a lot of times. So what? So what here? Right. When I was a grad student with Schmidt, we went to a NASPA conference, and I remember a very esoteric presentation by a big name in the field and some grad student not realizing, you know, what he was asking. <laughs> he didn't say, you didn't even say I enjoyed your presentation, but he did say, well, I have a question, sir. Um, what's, what's the relevance of all this? What's the practical application? <laughs> and, and the presenter's comment was, I don't care. That's up to you to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And that, when I heard that, I thought, wow, <laughs> that's not very nice. <laughs> but that's kind of a feeling, I think, a lot. They're, they're just more interested in gaining the recognition of other researchers in their field than they are making sense to people that might be able to use this stuff if you could help translate it into applied ways. So. Well, Dr. Risberg, you've been so generous, um, you know, with your with your time and your your thoughts and experiences. Is there anything that that we haven't asked about, you know, sports psychology? Um, you know, ask um, anything that that you feel like you'd like to add um, that we just didn't uh, just didn't think of um, when we put our our outline together for you today. Not not really. I mean, I I can say with confidence. This is my own experience that. This is valuable stuff, and athletes appreciate it. You know, when you communicate it, communicate with them, um, work with them, not at them, or they get it and um, appreciate it. They really do. They they so I that that potential will never go away. I think it's a matter of. For any one individual that wants to do it, is tapping that potential. It's there. They're, if they're if it's not you, they'll find somebody who will help them get it until or keep trying until they find someone. So, well, I've enjoyed it too, for what it's worth, Brandon. Oh, very much so. What a privilege it's been. And I really appreciate Katie's input to the uh, to the podcast. Oh, I would not edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah the grad students um i mean i think as someone who obviously spent their you know professional life in, in academics grad students really are what continue our field going forward and oh, yeah. so we thought it was so important to have that in the podcast so we appreciate you oh, acknowledging yeah. you as well oh yeah i mean that that's a highlight of my faculty experiences sure and, you know grad students i mean undergrads they're they're clueless. They don't know where they're going, but <laughs> the graduate students have some focus and they're like family. They're almost mm -hmm. like your kids, you know, and you want to work together and particularly PhD students. They're like colleagues to me or they work for me. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, good luck with this. I'm glad you're doing it. I think it's, uh, you can't do any harm. 
<laughs> we're trying not we'll to. I don't know though. We'll see. Hopefully we I, don't, but thank you so much for, for making time for saying yes to this. Um, our field would not be what it was without people such as yourself and your, in your contribution. So we appreciate your authenticity and, and trusting us with some of these stories and, uh, and all the effort that you've put into making the field and the program at Tennessee and then all of the branches that, that come from that. So thank you so much. You're welcome so much. <laughs> well, we've asked and Dr. Risberg answered. Thank you again so much for joining us. And we will look forward to having all of our listeners join us on the next episode of Aspen Answered.